and I find that I have left my pulpit Bible in my office, so I'm just going to ask for one of these pew Bibles here. I'm not going to ask for it, I'm going to take it. There we go. So, <laughs> sorry guys, we'll be reading from the New King James, which actually is, uh, in the providence of God is advantageous for us this morning. We'll find out why later. Uh, Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Lord, we would be those who are to the praise of your glory. And that can only come about if you make your word live in us. And so we ask you to do that this morning. Come, O oh Lord, and light a fire. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, uh, last week we began wrestling from the scriptures with this idea of the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And I don't mean sealing like the sealing, I mean the Holy Spirit placing us or being for us is probably a better way to say it, being for us a seal. And this is an issue about which there has been some controversy and some dispute within evangelical Christianity, particularly in the last 60 years or so. I think it's unfortunate I think it's perhaps also unnecessary, we'll see. And here is the issue behind the issue. When you just read the New Testament, when you read the book of Acts, and you look at the life of the church as it is portrayed in the scriptures, and then you look at the life of the church today, there is a vast difference. And I think you can sum up that vast difference with two words, holiness and power. Holiness and power. The New Testament church was not perfect. We know that from the epistles. We, for instance, can read First and Second Corinthians and see a church with a lot of problems. But the New Testament church as a whole shined with holiness. And after the apostolic era, after the close of the New Testament, the New Testament, the early church shined with holiness. And that holiness came from deep within the people. It was produced both by a love of God and a fear of God. And if I were to pick which of those was most prevalent, it would be no contest. It would be the fear of God. They were people who feared God. God. The fear of the Lord is mentioned 12 times in the book of Acts. That's far and away the most times it's mentioned in any book in the New Testament. Almost any book in the Bible except Psalms and Proverbs. 
The next closest book in the New Testament uh, talks about the fear of the Lord, mentions it six times, and that's in the book of Revelation. And over and over again in the book of Acts, it mentions that a godly fear was upon the people. That godly fear, which is the beginning of wisdom, as Proverbs 1-7 says. That godly fear that causes us to hate evil and pride and arrogance, as Proverbs 8-13 says. That godly fear that is a, a fountain of life, as Proverbs 14-27 says, and which causes us to depart from the ways of sin and evil, as Job 28-28 says. God shows his secrets to those who fear him, says Psalm 25-4. And that fear gives us an undivided heart says Psalm 86.11, so that the desires of our lives all flow in one direction, towards God. An evangelical obedience is easy when you fear the Lord. But why did the early church know the fear of the Lord in this way? Well, they feared the Lord because the Holy Spirit was present among them in power. And I think that was the key. I think that our main obstacle and our main shortcoming today is that the Holy Spirit is present among us. He is always present, and he's always working to one degree or another. But he is not present in a way that is plainly visible and manifest. He is not operating in a way that shows his power. And the question is, why not? Why not? Well, some have said the New Testament era was unique and God was doing a new thing and he was fueling it with extraordinary manifestations of power which were primarily wrought through extraordinary men. And just as we don't have those extraordinary men with us today, those apostles anymore, we also don't have these extraordinary manifestations of God's power anymore. And while I think that argument has a certain merit, it doesn't seem to cover all the facts. Because there have been many periods in the history of the church where the Holy Spirit seems to have been poured out in an abundant measure and things happen which cannot be explained away. They're called revivals. Now a revival is not a temporary upswing in religious enthusiasm. It is not a mass hysteria that causes people to jump up and down and bark like dogs or fall on the floor laughing hysterically for hours. It is not induced by hours and hours of singing mantra-like songs until we achieve some kind of state of mass hypnosis. It's not programmed by man or his techniques. There's been enough of that in the last 150 years called revival and it doesn't do anything of value, not of lasting value. What is a revival? What is a true revival? A true revival is a move of God's spirit which is usually sought diligently and longed for in prayer by a small number of individual Christians, often as a result of powerful promptings given to those individuals by God himself. And they pray. Sometimes they pray for months. Sometimes they pray for years. 
And then in response to those prayers, all of the sudden, God moves. And God always starts in a revival with the church. And always, before revival comes, the church is weak and the church is ineffective. She is at ease with the sin in her midst. She finds herself almost begging for the world to pay some attention to her. And she tries all kinds of human initiatives to get the world's approval and to get the world's attention and to get the world's participation in the hopes that maybe some will be converted. But for the most part, all of these efforts and labors produce merely natural results. But when revival comes, God often does more in a few hours than the human-sized works can do in a decade. And the first thing that happens in a revival is that the church is humbled. Men and women suddenly realize how far from God they are and how much reason God has to be displeased with them and his fatherly displeasure lies hard upon them. Often they weep. Often they cry out for mercy. And the Holy Spirit afflicts them with a consciousness of sin about their lack of holiness. Not only that, but in every church, you've got unregenerate, unconverted pew warmers. And in a revival, the unregenerate, unconverted church member, who has always been self-satisfied up to that point, suddenly realizes that they're unconverted. And they too cry out to God in spiritual angst, sometimes for considerable periods of time before they're finally truly and soundly converted. And only when the church begins to come to life do we find the world beginning to take notice. And men and women find themselves attracted to the church, drawn to the church to come in for reasons that they can't explain. And when they come, they discover the power and the presence of God, and they are converted too. And on and on it goes until the Lord finally brings it sovereignly to an end. And by the end, perhaps hundreds of thousands or even millions are converted. Now, let me give you an example. This one is not widely known about, but in 1859, a revival began in, of all places, New York City. Now, as somebody who was raised where I was raised and lived where I used to live, you got to understand, New York City looks like the on-ramp to the apocalypse to me. I know there's some people here, you know, from New York or New York City or, you know, they were raised there or whatever, but it, that's just strange people, strange land, don't go there. It was actually one of the things that freaked us out a little bit when we came here is we're driving around town and you get on the interstate and you see that sign for interstate, uh, is it 80, going, going east, and it says New York City. And we're like, oh my gosh, we're close enough to that place that there's signs on the highway telling us how to get there. It just, I, I don't have a, never been there, don't particularly want to go there. I'm sure I will go there. My daughter wants to go there, so I'll probably get drugged there, but, and then I'll come home and feel better about life somehow. But in 1859, this revival begins in New York City and it sweeps across Canada and then it jumps across the Atlantic Ocean to England and to Scotland and to Wales and to Northern Ireland. Now, listen to this account about how the revival began. The writer writes, for the origins of this revival, we need to go back to 1857 in the USA. 
Although there had been a moving of the Holy Spirit in Canada before this time, the event that appears to have been the catalyst for the spread of the revival was a prayer meeting commenced by Jeremiah Lanfear, a layman with the Dutch Reformed Church in New York. Noticing that businessmen in the city were looking downcast at the economic state of the country at that time, he decided to hold a midday prayer meeting on the third floor of the church in Fulton Street for one hour each Wednesday. At first, he was the only person present, but after a half an hour, a further five men joined him. The second week, 20 businessmen turned up, and then 40 the following week. Then they agreed to meet every day, and on the first day, a hundred men turned up, many of whom were not Christians. After three months, every room in that church was filled with men praying, and the others on the outside kneeling together praying because they couldn't get into the church. A further church nearby was open for prayer, but that also became filled. A theater was then hired for this purpose, and on the first day, half an hour before the announced time, it was packed to capacity again with men on the outside praying because they couldn't get in. Within six months, there were 150 prayer meetings like this going on somewhere in New York City with 50,000 gathered for prayer. This also became a means of outreach, and appeals were made for people to receive Christ and no less than 25,000 businessmen were converted. It was not uncommon to see a hundred people come down the aisle of a church at invitation time, confessing their sins openly and receiving Christ into their life. Soon a common midday sign on business premises read, we will reopen at the close of the prayer meeting. As time went on, the movement spread to the whole of the USA and Canada, and there were actually places where not a single person was left unconverted. Along the east coast of America, there was a zone of heavenly influence, that, so that even the ships coming in from abroad, who knew nothing of the revival, but when they came within a few miles of land, God got hold of people on board the ships, and in some cases, the whole crew got converted. Thirty captains of vessels like this were converted. During the period of 1857-1858, no less than one million people were converted in the USA. If such a revival were to hit America today, the equivalent number of conversions would be somewhere in the region of eight to nine million people. And what is the outcome of true revival? Lives are changed noticeably, verifiably, and permanently. The cold-hearted, backsliding Christian gets warmed up and stays warmed up. Jesus is real. He is a close and loving presence to them, and he is so for their whole lives. The dead, unregenerate, pew-warming church member realizes their need for true conversion and is saved to the uttermost. And both the nice, respectable worldling and the most unapologetic, vile sinner are drawn to the church. They're drawn to the Lord. They're saved and they're sanctified. And the effect is so often widespread that entire cultures are transformed from the bottom up. And churches are full, not just on Sunday morning, 
but also on Sunday evenings and at midweek prayer meetings. And those prayer meetings actually become central to the life of the church where there was very little or no prayer before. Young people's interests are no longer dominated by sports and entertainment. And they'd rather gather together for a Bible study or a prayer meeting with like-minded young people than anything else. Young people answer the Holy Spirit's call to the mission field and to the pastoral ministry, and they give their lives to full-time Christian service. Oftentimes, supernatural phenomena happen which are widely attested to by multiple witnesses. As a, for instance, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones mentioned in a sermon that he preached in 1959 that he knew a minister in the Calvinistic Methodist Church of Wales who was used by God in a revival that took place in Wales in 1904-1905. And during this revival, this minister began to be awakened by God at 2 a.m. each morning on the dot and told what would happen in his church on that day. And those things that he was told always came to pass. Those experiences happened each night during the revival until the revival came to an end in 1905. And then so did his visions. Sometimes there are visions given, as happened with Peggy Smith, whom I mentioned last week in the Lewis revival, the 84-year-old godly woman who was burdened about the low state of her church in the village of Barabbas on the Isle of Lewis in Scotland in 1949. I mentioned that revival last week. And she was concerned specifically that the young people didn't have time for the church, had no interest in the things of God. And she knelt and she prayed and she received a vision of the church full of young people and a strange man who was not her minister standing in the pulpit. And she brought that to her pastor and said, this is what God wants to do. And he was wise enough to say, well, then let's pray for it. And he and his elders set aside time every Friday night from 10 p.m. till 2 a.m. to pray. Now, pastor, you may say, this is all very interesting. But what does it have to do with today's text and with the issue of the sealing of the Holy Spirit? Well, it has everything to do with it. You see, when we talk about the low state of the church today, what we're really talking about is the low spiritual temperature of most individual Christians. And we have to ask the question, why are individual Christians so bad off today? Why don't we look more like New Testament Christians? Why doesn't our church look more like the New Testament church? Because if we get our diagnosis wrong, then we'll try and apply the incorrect remedy and it won't work. For instance, we might just assume that what we need to do is learn more sound doctrine, that the problem with the church is that we don't know enough sound doctrine. We need to be more diligent, perhaps, in our quiet time or our Bible reading. Someone else will pop up and say, well, we just need to get moving and do something, do outreach, start a program, just throw it all up against the wall and see what sticks. Maybe God will do something with it. Well, we do need to learn sound doctrine, but your coldness and your prayerlessness and your worldliness and your self-absorption 
and your lack of evangelistic zeal probably aren't a result of ignorance. It's not like you don't know any better. It's that deep down inside, it doesn't bother you very much. You're pretty content to have things the way they are. And if I'm to be very honest with you, it is all too often the same with me. So I can't hold myself up as an example. But if that's the case, then learning more doctrine won't help, will it? And it's been my experience that a regular quiet time can be a great blessing when my spirit is warm, but it can be an unprofitable drudgery when my spirit is not warm. And as for outreach programs, well, come meet Jesus and join our church and be one of us isn't exactly a soul-stirring message when the world can plainly see that we aren't very much different than they are. It's not that there's no benefit to be had in these things. It's not that they're bad. It's that they're not the problem. They're not addressing the problem. It's more like they're aspirin. And aspirin is fine when you have a headache. It's very helpful, but it will do very little to cure a case of double pneumonia. You need something stronger. You need something targeted. And church leaders, sensing that something needs to be done, keep pressing the aspirin on their congregations. Here, try this one. It's extra strength. Oh, how about this one? It's got that nice coating so that you don't get an upset stomach after you take the aspirin. Uh, this one, this one has caffeine in it, and it's in a powder form so that it acts quickly. But it's all aspirin. And I want to say, you and your aspirin go away for a little while. The patient is clearly having a hard time breathing. Give me a prescription antibiotic, please. And it's my conviction that what ails us, both individually and collectively, is that we lack that which marked the early church in Acts. We lack a great love for the Lord, and more importantly, a reverent fear of the Lord. Because we have not experienced the Spirit of God moving with power upon us and among us. He's here, but he's not here in manifest power. If you're truly converted, he's in you, but is he in you with manifest power? Can the world see it? Now, last week we said that a seal is a mark that does three things. It conveys authority and authenticity. It marks ownership. And it secures a precious thing against theft or interference. And the Holy Spirit does all of those things for you. He testifies as to the, the authenticity of your salvation. He grants authority to your message when you speak the things of God to people. He marks you as God's own treasured possession. And he secures you so that no one can snatch you out of your Father's hand. And we said that Jesus was also sealed, according to the Gospels, and his life, his stunningly brilliant teaching, and his miraculous deeds were God's seal upon him. They testified to the authority of his person and his message. They marked him as God's only begotten son, and they secured his infallible plan against the attacks 
of his enemies and of his well-meaning but ignorant friends and supporters. And most of all, we said, it was manifestly apparent to everyone, friend and foe alike, that the Father's sealing of the Lord Jesus with his spirit was manifest. You couldn't ignore it. The Pharisees one time in John chapter 7 sent some men out to arrest Jesus and they came back empty-handed and astonished and the, of course their bosses are mad and when they asked them why they didn't arrest Jesus, all they could say was, no one ever spoke like this man spoke. Just the power of his message was God's seal upon him. Now, I want to suggest to you three things, which we will only state briefly today, but which we will take up in more detail next week if the Lord spares us. Three things. Number one, our sealing by the Spirit should produce in us manifest effects which can be discerned by others, both believers and unbelievers alike just like it did for Jesus. Let me give you an example from the Bible. In Acts chapter four, Peter and John are arrested and they're being bullied by the Sanhedrin on account of healing a lame man. And they're called in to give an account of themselves and they make their defense. And when they're done, the Sanhedrin, the Supreme Court of the Jews of that day, are amazed. Acts 4.13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. But you know, the same sort of thing is reported outside of the Bible. In the 1859 revival, in Ulster, Northern Ireland, there were several poor and illiterate loom workers, women who were converted. Before their conversion, they were very shy. They would not dare to speak publicly on any matter because they had a complete lack of education. They couldn't even read and write. And they were very sensitive to their inability to speak properly and coherently, which was a cultural expectation in that day. But immediately upon conversion, they all began to testify powerfully, articulately, and publicly about what God had done. And people were amazed who knew them before. She couldn't talk like this before. What's got into her? The Spirit of God had gotten into her. And they were instrumental in leading a number of girls off of the streets and to the Lord. It is even noted that children began to pray with a strange eloquence and fervor. There is an old pamphlet that details a children's prayer meeting. You can find it on the internet. I love the internet. This, all this stuff is like, hey, that's in the Bodleian Library in Oxford, but I can read it here. I love that. And, and so these, this minister goes to check out this report of a children's prayer meeting, and he goes and he finds about 45 children from the ages of five or six all the way up to 17 years old and they're praying and he listens to them pray and he is amazed as 12 year old boys begin begging God to burn the sin out of them and fill them with his spirit and a love for his holiness. 
And if we are sealed by the Spirit, it must not merely be an inward and subjective experience. It will work in us in such a way that others will see. They'll say, you're different. What's got into you? The second thing I wish to say is that the sealing of the Spirit is an event which is distinct from and takes place after conversion. We see this in today's passage in Ephesians, though the translation in the ESV is not as clear and helpful as it could be. The ESV says, when you heard the word of truth and believed in him, you were sealed. And that seems to at least leave open the possibility that the sealing happens at the time that we believe savingly on Christ. The New King James, which we read, I read this morning, um, which is the version of the Pew Bible in front of you, is a little bit better, but still not great. It reads, in him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also having believed you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. But the best one, actually, is the old King James Version, which reads, after that ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. After you believed, you were sealed. In other words, there is one gracious work of the Spirit in causing you to believe savingly on Christ, and then there is another gracious work of the Spirit which seals you in Christ. And the interval of time between those two may be quite short, or it may be long. But they are two distinct works of the Spirit with two distinct jobs in the life of the Christian man or the Christian woman. One saves you, the other visibly marks you as a child of God in one way or another, and is therefore a source of deep peace, abounding joy, and spiritual power. And this leads to my third point. The sealing of the Holy Spirit is not automatically conveyed. It's not automatic. It can be neglected. It can be missed. It can even be successfully resisted. Now you see, the Holy Spirit has some operations which are sovereign and which are irresistible, like bringing a sinner to saving faith and justifying him. But there are some operations of the Holy Spirit that are quite resistible, like an individual growing in sanctification. The sealing of the Spirit is more like sanctification than it is like justification. It ordinarily requires our cooperation and our effort. We must seek it out. If we neglect it because we are unaware of it or we resist it because we are scared of drifting into bad doctrine or walking on paths that our favorite Bible teachers might disapprove of, it will probably not happen to us and we will remain as we are. You see, the Holy Spirit can be resisted. Acts 7.51 tells us that. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. 
Ephesians 4.30 tells us that. The Holy Spirit can be quenched or extinguished. 1 Thessalonians 5.19 tells us that. John Piper puts it this way. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5 that God has granted to Christians the ability either to resist or release what the Spirit does in the life of a local church. The Spirit comes to us as a fire, either to be fanned into full flame and given the freedom to accomplish His will, or to be doused and extinguished by the water of human fear, control, and flawed theology. Now, I keep mentioning revival in this context, and here's why. Because revival is, at its basic level, when it begins, about churches full of regenerate Christians who are saved, but who are not sealed. They're saved, but they're not sealed. And because they're not sealed, they're weak, and they're ineffective. And along with the saved but unsealed are the unconverted in the pews. And every revival worthy of the name that I could find always began with a small number of saved but not sealed Christians being moved to pray for God to do something about their cold hearts and the cold hearts of their brothers and sisters in Christ. And God does so. In his mercy, he begins showering the sealing of the Spirit upon them. And the first thing that happens is that the Lord's own get put right and they become filled with the Holy Spirit. And only then do the churched hypocrites and the unbelievers outside of the church begin to get converted. One minister in Northern Ireland in 1860 put it this way. We now have seen the wondrous difference which his presence makes. When he is absent, Christians are cold. Ordinances are powerless. Sinners immovable and dead. Wickedness prevalent. When he comes in his love and grace and power, God's children are lively and tender, loving and fervent, zealous and laborious. The means of grace prove effectual to the salvation of multitudes. Hypocrites are unmasked and the careless are alarmed and aroused. The ungodly fly to Jesus, and iniquity, abashed, hides its head. But you needn't wait for a revival to break out, to begin seeking the Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, you ought not wait. You can seek it now as an individual for your own well-being. I mentioned last week that I have a friend who's a retired minister in Scotland who uh, likes to watch online. His name is Donald Martin. And um, he was from the Isle of Lewis. He's born on the Isle of Lewis where the revival happened in 1949. And he knew many people who were converted in that revival. And he mentioned a name, Donald McPhail. I had my wife ask him this morning, did you actually know Donald McPhail? And he said, no, I didn't know him, um, but we heard about him a lot. Donald McPhail was 16 years old in 1949 when the revival broke out. And uh, he died in 2005. He was a missionary 
to uh, these little Muslim villages in what is today Yemen, in southern, the south of Saudi Arabia. And this is a portion of his testimony. At this time, the news spread of spiritual awakening down the coast in the villages of Barvas and Shatter. In the secondary school which I attended, boys and girls from these villages spoke of how a certain wild minister by the name of Duncan Campbell preached fearlessly and forcibly, hitting and thumping pulpits and pointing his finger at people who automatically begin, uh, became infected with the quorum, the term for conversion that seems to be considered by non-Christians in the Hebrides as a spiritual disease from which you may not recover. The next news I heard was that Mr. Campbell was to conduct a series of meetings in the mission hall at my home. As far as I could recollect, I had never attended the parish church, and to avoid spiritual infection, I had more or less decided that I would not be seen within its walls. However, this was a chance not to be missed. Out of curiosity, I attended the first meeting in order that I might know for myself whether what I had heard was really the truth. That first night, I was gripped by the word, read and preached, and I could not stay away the following nights. Perhaps for the first time in my life, I became aware of the presence of God and began to understand something of my need of Christ as my savior from sin. And from then on, there followed days of secret struggle in prayer. After attending those meetings for a week, I could not resist the call of the gospel any longer. Vividly do I recall that dark Thursday night when the word of God reiterated with conviction through my enlightened mind. I call heaven and earth to record this day against you. I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both thou and thy seed may live. Deuteronomy 30, 19. With what terrible clarity I saw and understood the way of salvation of Christ, yet at the same time I was given an insight into the terrible consequences of rejecting Christ and the Lord's provision for my salvation. After the midnight cottage meeting, you see they would meet at the church and then they would go to a cottage for a prayer meeting for those that were anxious or interested and concerned about their soul. After the midnight cottage meeting, I endeavored to leave for home, but on looking around outside the house, I noticed a man praying by the side of the wall. Shouts and heavy sighs were heard from people within as if crying for help. I could not restrain myself any longer and touched that godly man. In a broken voice, I told him that I wanted to get right with God before it would be too late. He turned and I saw Christ in the very expression of his face. In compassion, he took me by the hand and led me into the prayer meeting where nine other villagers were on their knees seeking the Savior. That night, I was considerably relieved to have made a decision for Christ. Mark this. At a subsequent prayer meeting, while a godly man from Shatter prayed, I became aware of the peace and joy of the Holy Spirit flooding my soul. And I knew without a doubt that my sins were forgiven. And I confess with honesty that I have never known such deep 
peace, real joy, and inward liberty and freedom. After that young man was converted, he would often pray at the opening of services that Duncan Campbell held. And it's said that his prayers won more people to Christ than all the ministers on the Isle of Lewis together. And he felt the call later to full-time Christian service and went onto the mission field. He died, I believe, in Australia. No, in Scotland in 2005. That's what God does. That's what he has done. That's what he could do again. The question that faces you and me is do we want him to? Would we like for this to happen to shake us out of our comfort? Would we see the spirit come down? Would we be comfortable with being uncomfortable? And let God do his work among us, whatever that might be. I don't know about you, but I think I am. And I think that's what I want more than anything right now, is for God to do something with my mess so that maybe I can help you with yours. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, he could change us both. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word, which is living and active, which is sharper than any two-edged sword. Thank you that you are a sovereign God who calls people to yourself. But thank you, Lord, that there are also aspects of your ministry to us which must be sought, which must be longed for, which are themselves a test of what is inside of us. We hear the voice of Jesus speaking as he spoke to that man long ago. What do you want me to do for you? Let us each consider that answer very closely and answer truly. What do we really want Jesus to do for us? Amen.